The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. And I have no grounds to stand in your presence, nor does anybody else in this room in, in ourselves. You are holy and we are not. And I pray that you would extend to me at this moment to each one of us here grace, Cleanse us of sin as has been prayed already. Grace to open our eyes to, to see, to open our ears to hear. Lord, I pray that you speak to us through your word, and I have no right to even ask that. But I come to you based on the gracious work that you have done in sending Christ and bringing to us righteousness. And on that ground, I ask you for mercy for me, for others here. Lord, speak, I pray. As we change settings here and move to another time and another place, would you speak and would you Enable us to understand your word and to see you in it and to reverence you in it. Speak through these words from your scripture. Produce growth in your church. Bring people into your church. Give glory to your son. Father, that is what I ask. And I pray it in his name. Amen. It's a little ring, I think. Last week we began a new series in the book of Deuteronomy, and we actually began there by starting in the book of Romans. The end of chapter 9 in Romans and the beginning of 10. And we went there so as to help us to gain a bit of a perspective in how it is that we should approach this Old Testament book of the law. And what we saw there in Paul's statement was an answer to why it was that the Jewish people largely missed the coming of their Messiah. That's the question he's dealing with that gives us our perspective. He's facing this question of if Jesus is in fact the Messiah of Israel, why is it that most of Israel missed him? And his answer there is because, unfortunately, most of Israel, ethnic Israel, approached the law as if it were based on works, which it isn't. They approach it as if it were based on works, and so they missed the Messiah. And when he says that, that helps us. It teaches us something, tips us off, that we now should approach the law through faith. And to continue on with Paul on into Romans chapter 10, faith in Christ, who is the end of the law, the one towards whom the whole law is moving. It's all moving towards and pointing to Jesus. We approach the law through faith, faith in Christ. So with that perspective from Romans, now we turn our attention to Deuteronomy proper. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Old Testament, fifth book of the Law of Moses. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And its name comes from the Greek, which means basically second law. But in Hebrew, following the custom, the, the title is just, These are the Words. Taking the very first phrase of the book, making it the title, These are the Words. And that title is a fitting summary of the book because as we look at Deuteronomy, what we're going to notice is that the bulk of it is three speeches that Moses gave on one day. These are his words, all on, if you will, on one afternoon. And it's the final day that Moses spends with Israel. And a close reading of the book seems to indicate it's the final day of his life. 
Moses and Israel are at a turning point. They're about to part ways. He's about to give them over to another leader. They are about to head across the Jordan into battle. And there will be no turning back. And he's about to head into the mountains to die. And at that major turning point in Moses' life and in the life of Israel, they pause to consider something. These words. And what a collection of words they are. There is a wide range of topics in this book. It's all over the place. But it's helpful in understanding the book to realize that it's not just a random collection of stuff, that there is, in fact, a very special structure that governs the whole book of Deuteronomy. These words that Moses spoke, they're a document, a treaty document. This is the second presentation of the Mosaic Covenant. Forty years before Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, as Deuteronomy repeatedly calls it, God had given his covenant through Moses to the people. And this is the repetition of that 40 years later for the next generation to hear it and to kind of claim it for themselves. That much we know. That's obvious. But what might not be so obvious to us is to realize that as they hear him speaking this, it would sound very, very similar to other things, to other documents that they were familiar with from their lives. Documents made by powers with subjected people, probably even very similar to the document that had governed their relationship with their master, Egypt, when they were enslaved there. In that day, powerful, dominant rulers frequently drew up treaties with subjected people that would govern how it is that the the powerful ruler and his subjected people related to one another. King A, if you will, would, would go on a military campaign, would fight against it, would conquer a people, and then he would stipulate to them the peace treaty that would then contain a whole bunch of regulations about how it is now that they were to live in relationship to one another so as to keep from being utterly wiped out. And the king would dictate that to the people. There wouldn't be any negotiation. He's the omnipotent power. They're the subjected people. They receive his requirements. All the treaties of that day, made by many different people, Egyptians and Hittites and Assyrians and whatnot, they all follow this very similar pattern. And the book of Deuteronomy fits that pattern very closely. A treaty would begin with a a preamble stating who the parties are that are involved, the king and the people. That's the first three verses of Deuteronomy. And then the treaty would rehearse some of the past history, a big flashback explaining how it is that we got to this point. You might recall in the year such and such, I invaded you with my army and I conquered you at this battle and tore down these cities. Remember all that? The historical recap, Deuteronomy 1 through 4. And then recapping the history to bring us up to this point, here's the way it's going to be the basic statement of the stipulations in real brief format written down on two tablets one for you one for me we leave this one with you and this one with me so that we can remember the basics of what it is that we've agreed to that's Deuteronomy 5 the Ten Commandments two tablets not one through five and six through ten one through ten and one through ten one for you one for me And then after the brief stipulation of the code would come the elaboration, the details all chased out. That's the bulk of Deuteronomy. And this treaty would always close off with a section of blessings and curses. If you keep my commands and walk in my ways, then here's all the wonderful things that I will do for you. I will bless you in this way and protect you in this way and provide these things for you, the blessings. And if you don't, here's what I'll do culminating ultimately and I'll invade you again and wipe you out totally. The curses. Deuteronomy 27 through 30. It very much follows this pattern of an ancient treaty and as the people hear this given to them all in one afternoon, they would realize that's what's going on. His treaty with us. This great king and we the subjected people. Now, here at the beginning, we're observing that. Towards what end? Just, just for a little history lesson? No, I think there are a couple of things that are helpful in noting this pattern. First, it's helpful to note 
that the king would make such a treaty with the people who were already his people. He had already taken them to be his possession. He didn't make this treaty so as to make his people his own. It's because they already were. And they didn't follow the stipulations to become his people. They followed them because they already were and they wanted to know how to live in a way that pleased him. Which isn't a whole lot different than how we're accustomed to thinking about obedience in the New Testament era. I think we have it pretty clear that we don't obey God's rules so as to become God's people. We obey his rules because we are his people, which is exactly what's going on here. Moses, God says through Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go. They're already his people. Let my people go so that they can go out into the mountain and worship me where I'm going to make a treaty with them. They're already his people. We obey the law to please him, not to become his It's helpful to know. We learn that from this treaty structure. The second thing we learn is that this king and these people, a people can only be subjected to one of these kings at any given time. He owns them, which means that that king over there doesn't. He owns them. God is claiming a people in a treaty, and he's saying the Egyptians that used to own you, they don't anymore. The Assyrians who used to try to own you, they can't. Nobody owns you but me. I am the one you are to fear. I am the one you are to serve. I am the one in whom you are with whom you are in a treaty. Respond to me and nobody else. Don't fear any of them, me only. Now, if he was a bad king, that would be trouble. As we look through Deuteronomy, we see over and over again the evidence of grace, words like love. We realize Being claimed by this one king is liberation from all those other kings. He sets them free from Egypt to bring them under his own control. So the law is a good thing. This treaty document is a good thing because it says I have been liberated from the service to everybody else and brought into the service to a one good king. So as we move into Deuteronomy, we now have a couple of pieces of kind of like the big picture background. From Romans, we see we are to approach the law by faith, faith in Christ. And we are to realize that these stipulations here are not so as to create a relationship between us and God, but they are how we live pleasingly in the relationship that we already have with God. Relationship comes by another means. And lastly, we are to see it as a good thing, a blessing that he has claimed us as his own. That's some of the backdrop now that we should keep in mind as we move into the book proper. I'm going to read our text for this morning, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. I'm going to read it, pause in the middle to explain some things, read the second half, pause, and then make a couple of overarching points at the end. So let me read Deuteronomy 1, verses 1 through 8. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them, after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edre. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. 
See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. Let's pause there. This section is setting the stage for us. It includes that little preamble saying who the parties are that are involved. The Lord. Remember when we see L-O-R-D all in capital letters, it's like a name. It's like a proper name. The Lord your God is like saying Barak your president. It's a proper name. So the Lord is the one who's the king and all of Israel are the people. And then we've got Moses. Verses 1, 3, and 5. Moses is the spokesman very closely tied to God, such that what comes out of Moses' mouth is actually what's coming out of God's mouth. He is speaking, verse 3, all that God commanded him to speak to Israel. In verse 5, he undertakes to explain the law. He has to explain it. The whole book is an explanation of the law. Now, if you just think of the word law as kind of like a listing of do's and don'ts, that doesn't make quite as much sense. Don't steal. What do you have to explain about that? It's pretty clear. But actually, law, we we could translate that word actually instruction. It's the guidance. It's the steering of God. His rules, his laws, his instruction are much more elaborate than just a simple collection of do's and don'ts. They are teaching that steers us, that directs us. It is his instruction, his law. And so Moses, yeah, Moses has to explain that. It's going to take a whole book to elaborate on it. And he begins with a flashback leading into the historical prologue. He's taking them back. They're standing there in the plains of Moab, which is on the east side of the Jordan River, waiting to cross over into Israel proper. They're standing there, and he flashes back 40 years to Mount Sinai, Horeb, And he recounts for them there what God did right after he gave the law. He said, we're done here. Turn now and head into the land. And he gives his geographic boundaries to it. And it's a huge piece of land. It's a huge piece of land. If you kind of think that through on a modern map, it includes parts of Egypt, Israel, parts of modern-day Jordan, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. Huge piece of land, far more than Israel ever owned. But it's the land that he swore to give to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to you. Go get it. He reminds the people of that from 40 years previous, and he brings up something else to them, verses 9 to 18. At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, Commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Moses says, God commanded us to go into the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And when that came up, we also had a leadership issue that we had to work out. Because, as he had promised, he had also multiplied this people. And there's a huge number of folks here. And if we were going to undertake any kind of an activity, we had to figure out how to lead. And so I set out to appoint some leaders. It's got two kinds of leaders here. Commanders, military folks, the heads of these military-type units, thousands and hundreds and tens. 
military people, and judges who would help to, to explain and to enforce the law. He appointed them responsible, capable people, and then tells the judges how they are to act, They're basically to judge righteously and justly, to not be prejudiced against foreigners or against people who were of lesser means or to not be intimidated by people who were powerful, but to judge righteously and justly because ultimately the judgment is God's. So I set that up, says Moses, and then I began to I continued to teach you all that God had commanded, and we headed off towards the land. We're going to pause there for this morning. The narrative continues on into next week. We're basically stopping here to set up the stage for today, and there are two observations that I want to make from this passage. And really, these observations, they cover the book, which isn't surprising here given in the beginning that there would be something here that that covers the whole of the book, I'm going to make them out of this passage and then kind of try to pull them together into a sentence at the end. First observation relates to God's expectation of his people. What he calls us to, what he desires to see in us. So here's the the first statement. Between the promise and the fullness, God calls us to an active faith. Between the promise and the fullness, in here in the middle, as he expect of us, he calls us to an active faith, a living, a, a real, an obedient faith. That's what I mean by active. I don't mean like caught up in activities, like frenetic. I mean obedient, one that actually takes it and puts it into practice, whatever the command is. An obedient, active faith between the promise and the fullness. That is, between the time when God says he's going to do something, he issues a command or a promise, he he says something, and somewhere down the road it, it comes to fruition in the fullness. All of it comes to pass. And between there, there's a lot of life lived there in the middle. And how does he expect us to respond in the middle? With active faith. This whole book takes place right in the middle. The people of Israel are standing there between the promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the promises made to Joseph, the deliverance out of Egypt, the giving of the law, the, the wandering through the wilderness, that's all behind them. And what's in front of them, I mean physically, literally, right in front of them, is the promised land of rest. And they're right here. They've hit the pause button. What does he want? Active faith. Now, in saying active faith, I'm making a little connection that I should make explicit, I should clarify this. Because if you read through the passage and you look for the word faith or related verbs like trust or believe, they're not there. There's nothing there. But there is a whole lot about the active part, the obedience part. There's commands about go, turn and go in and take the land. Appoint these kinds of judges. Tell them to behave in this sort of way. And it ends with Moses saying that I continue to command you all the things that you should do. There's a heavy emphasis on the active, the obedient part. Do this. Without negating that, I want to point out the faith part. Reason being, think back to Romans 9. If we approach this book without taking into account faith, we're missing something. Moses actually, God actually wants us to see and to think about, to contemplate faith in this book. He wants active faith, activity that comes out of trust in here. Where do I see this? Well, look at how God calls for it in verse 7. Got some commands there in seven and an eight. Turn. Hear the directional aspect there. It's as if they're walking this way. He says, turn and head towards something. Towards what? Well, he defines it geographically, this land right here. Then he clarifies, turn and go and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers and to you. 
He swore this. Promised it on an oath. Go and take it. That is a call to faith. It's a call to believe a promise and then act on it. A long time ago, he says, I swore. That's a double promise. That's an oath. I swore it. I didn't just say, you know, maybe. I swore that I would give it to them. And I kept repeating that down through all of the generations. Promised it to the fathers. Promised it to you on oath. Believe that. There it is. Believe that. Get up and go get it. And they're supposed to hear it and say, He said it. I believe it. And I will act accordingly. They are not supposed to say, He said it. I believe it. And I'm not going to do anything at all. That's unbelief. That would be disobedience. He's clearly calling for them to hear what he said, believe him, and act. Active faith. That dynamic shows up again in what he says to the judges. Verse 17. He says to the judges, 16 and 17, here's the kind of judge that you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be righteous, not partial. Not partial against the aliens, not partial against poor people, not partial for powerful people. Don't be intimidated by anybody. That's my command. That's my word to you. Don't be like that. Instead, judge righteously. How does he motivate that? By saying, for the judgment is God's. You're going to sit in court, judge, and you're going to look out at these people, and you're going to be tempted to say, that guy's not from around here. He's a foreigner. It's going to be easy to slight him. This woman's poor. It's going to be easy to slight her. This guy's rich and powerful. I better do whatever he wants. That's what the temptation is going to be because that's right in front of your eyes. But I want to tell you something and encourage you to believe it. Right back here over your shoulder sits God. You don't realize it, judge, but you're actually gathered in God's courtroom. The judgment is his, not yours. And if you believe that he's sitting right there and will sort this all out, you will judge righteously. Faith leading to action. It's the dynamic going on here. God calls us to an active faith between his word, his statement, his promise, and the actual fulfillment, accomplishment of it. It hasn't happened yet. We're still here in the middle. What do we do? Active faith. Let me pause there for a second. If you're here today and you're not a believer, you're hearing this maybe for the first time, maybe for the umpteenth time, and you're realizing that I stand on the outside of this. I'm looking at this, I understand it. There's this God, there's this people, there's this Bible, but I'm on the outside of it. What do you do with this? Ultimately, that's up to you. But what I encourage you to do with it is to think and to notice something's going on here. There's a dynamic of promise and fulfillment. And you live in the middle. God has promised a bunch of stuff. It's not all in this passage. It's implied in this passage in seeing the journey from the slavery in Egypt into the land of rest. But to make it explicit, God has promised back here That out here, people who trust Him, people who place faith in Him alone, specifically faith in Christ, will be delivered to a great and vast land of rest and blessing forever and ever and ever. Will have their guilt removed from them, their sin taken off of them, and will be saved. He has promised that to come. Hasn't yet, we're still right here. He has also promised back here the opposite of that. That there's coming a time when those who have not trusted in Christ will be forever turned away from God and left in misery and judgment under His wrath. Hasn't happened yet. We're still in the middle. How do you respond to that? 
Obviously, the call is faith. It steps out and says, I will believe and I will act accordingly. I will respond to him by trusting Christ. But you might not be ready for that. So let me encourage you with this. Take a half step in that direction and say, is it true? Is it true or not? Don't rest where many people do. Many people rest in, I hear this, ah, who cares? Don't bother me with this claim that it's true. I just would prefer to say that there isn't any such thing as truth. I'm not going to think about it. Don't stop there. There's a claim here of a dynamic of promise and fulfillment that could be great and glorious or devastating. You can't afford to just ignore it. Investigate it to find out, is it true or not? That's what faith might look like for you. You're not ready to trust it yet because you don't know, but investigate it. Respond to it. But most of us here I know have. And to be honest, this book is addressing people who already are in some sort of a relationship with God. What are, we disp- what are we supposed to do with this? Well, to realize a whole bunch of our life is still lived in this in-between, between the promise and the fullness. What I was just talking about, his promise of the great rest hasn't come for us yet. What are we to do? Respond in active Faith. Not the faith to trust him for the first time, the faith to trust him today, again and again. The problem is, we tend to kind of do something in our minds. We tend to try to separate the active and the faith part. To say, sure, I believe. Of course I believe. What am I doing about it? Well, nothing. But I believe Here's how it works in my life. I've been a Christian now for a bunch of years. Became a Christian in college. And shortly after that, in reading through the Bible and and being taught things and whatnot, I came upon Ephesians 6, 4, which is talking to fathers. And it says there, essentially, fathers, train up your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Clear command. Fathers, Here's what you're supposed to do. Now, I'm I'm a college kid reading this. I'm not a father. But I hear it. I believe it. I'm supposed to, if I were a father, I'm supposed to take responsibility for training up my kids, my children, in the way that God would have them to walk, to discipline them and to instruct them and to guide them. Got that. There has not been ever a time in my Christian life that I have not believed that. Had faith in it, if you will. But I spent a whole bunch of years dividing the active from the faith. Is, is, six, is Ephesians 6, 4 true? Of course. What are you doing about it? Nothing. Or, you know, one time this week I did something about it. But my kids are young. You know, I, I have one child. or You know, I have two, two kids, but they're too young to really understand anything, right? So let's just not do anything. And I developed this habit in my life of really trying to separate the active from the faith and claiming that is still faith. It's not. It's unbelief. If I say I believe it and don't respond to it, I don't believe it. So what have I been doing with that? I've been trying recently, last number of months, I've been trying to say this is true. My responsibility as a father to raise up my children to follow Christ is my responsibility as a father. It's not the school's responsibility. It's not the church's responsibility. They might be aides to me as the father. The command is to fathers. Me. A lot of you. Active faith says I read it, I believe it, and I will obey it. With God's help, clearly with God's help, His Spirit at work in me, but I will not rest in disobedience because that is actually unbelief. Not what He's called me to. You follow that? 
We're going we're to walk through Deuteronomy and see just tons of stuff. There are going to be lots of opportunities for you to respond in active faith. That's one that sits with me. You could, if you want to tie it to Deuteronomy, you could tie it to chapter 6. As you're walking, teach your kids about the Lord. If you're a father, maybe you need to think that through for yourselves. But you may have to expand that to your own sphere, to, to what God requires of you. You probably know it. But hold yourself and say, am I affirming belief and not doing anything about it? Separating faith and active, faith and obedience. Can't do that. He calls for active faith. Again and again and again in Deuteronomy, he calls for that. But they have a problem that also points out our blessing. You walk through Deuteronomy and you see them called to this and that and the other. And twice in this book, Moses is going to say to them, once in two different ways, he's essentially going to say to them, but the problem is you're not going to keep this. Because you don't have circumcised hearts. He concludes this sermon. Can you imagine if a preacher concludes the sermon by saying, that's what God requires, and none of you are going to keep it at the end. That's how Deuteronomy ends. Why? Because it's pointing us towards something, the end of the law. Christ. Only in the end of the law can we actually turn back around and keep it. Because in Christ, what happens when a person trusts Christ? God's Spirit comes to live inside of a person, to move him or her, to follow God's decrees. To give you the ability to live by faith in God's Word and not just by sight. If you're Christian, you have the Spirit living in you. Paul says in Romans, and by the Spirit you can put to death the misdeeds of the body. So I take up Ephesians 6, 4 with great hope. Is it going to involve discipline and work and, and a little bit of hardship on my part? Absolutely. By the Spirit can I do it? Absolutely. Thank God. He's opened this up to me in Christ. He's opened it up to you in Christ. Obedience is not only placed upon you as a requirement, but is enabled by God's Spirit working in you. He calls you to active faith. Don't delude yourself by saying, if I leave the active part off, I still have faith. You don't. That's unbelief. Active faith, right here, right now, between the time when it's promised or commanded and actually delivered. calls us to that. But wonderfully, he also does something I think is really gracious to help kind of pull us towards that. He gives us a promise, a command, instruction, guidance about what he is going to do out here and calls us to it, but he does something else, not just telling us obey here, but he helps us to obey. This leads me to my second observation. How does God encourage our active faith? Here's the second observation. God encourages our active faith by reminding us of the reliability of the promises. calls us to active faith, and then encourages us to walk that way by pointing out, by reminding us of the reliability of his promises. We've already seen how verse 8 ties the, the command to go and take the land. It ties it to the promise that God made. It's in verse 8, the land that I swore to give to the fathers, go take that. But there's a little more there. The beginning of verse 8 See, I have laid this land before you. It's not just saying, look, there it is. He's saying, I've set it up. When I was growing up, I played a lot of pool. I lived 
catty corner and down a house from my grandfather, who had a pool table and loved pool, and so I practically lived over there and played a lot of pool. But kind of how I got into it, how he taught me was with a little stool beside the table, and then he set the table for me. He'd move the cue ball, the white one that you're supposed to hit first. He'd move it over near the rail where I could reach it. I remember him often taking his cue and whacking all the other balls out of the way so that I could shoot at the one that he had set right in front of the pocket. He set the table. Now, I still had to shoot, but both of us knew that none of this was happening apart from him. It was his table, his stool, his equipment, his setup, his strategy, he positioned this one there and that one over there. He trained me in the early days. He even held the cue with me to kind of show me how to do it. All by his doing, he set the table. See, I have laid the land in front of you, or as the NIV has it, if you're reading it, see, I have given you the land. I've set it up for you. I've gone before you. It's all, here's the cue ball, and there's one in front of that pocket, one of that, one of that. I'm, I'm, I've gone before you. I have set it up. The table is ready to be run. Shoot. In the way that I tell you, with my guidance, but shoot, active. And it's going to work because I set it all up. First sentence of verse 8. As the people are standing there in Moab listening to this, there's something else that they see right along the same lines here. They hear Moses say in verse 3, verse 4, after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon and Og, king of Bashan, they're standing in the land of these two kings and then they hear the commandment to go take the land that part of it belongs to the Amorites in verse 7. Actually, it's not just go run the table. The first ball's already in. We're actually standing on some of this land that was promised. He set it up, and he's already delivering it. Look, right here is part of that land promised. Sworn to Abraham. We've already got it. He's showing them something. I call you to an active faith and you have every reason to believe that I'm in this and that it's going to work. This idea shows up again in verse 10. You read, you read the story of the judges and the commanders and you've got to ask, why is this here? It seems a little odd because a whole bunch of other stuff happened at that time. Why does he bring this thing up? It doesn't make any sense. Unless what you have on your mind is a desire to establish the reliability of the promises of God. Because what he says in verse 10 is, the whole reason that I had to appoint all these leaders... Some of you yourselves are leaders of tens or hundreds or thousands. You're a judge. The whole reason that you are is because God has multiplied you and made you as numerous as the stars in the heaven, which is exactly the language of his promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. Back in Genesis 15, he says to 80-year-old childless Abraham, Look up at the stars and count them if you can. So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed God and was counted as righteous. And Moses is saying, look around. The promises of God are utterly reliable. Look at the land you're standing on. He started to deliver it to you. Look at the thousands, millions of people that are standing here. He has multiplied us, kept the promise made to Abraham. Look right over there at the table that's set to run. He is keeping his promises. They are reliable. Now, is it all done? No, there's a whole bunch more to come. 
There's a vast amount of land to be conquered yet. Verse 11's hope is that he would multiply them even more like he promised. But the first fruits are at hand. Right here. Standing around you. The land you're standing on. So trust him and step out to seize the rest of it. This is the dynamic of this passage. He's calling them to something, expecting them to actively walk in it, and then he's giving them inducements, if you will, encouragements, and it's going to work. Look at this. He's multiplied. It's like he said he would to Abraham. Look at this. He's given us the land like he said he would to Abraham. Look over there. It's all set for us. That's the dynamic of this passage. God is presenting an argument to our minds. Look at the promises. Look at the promise maker. Realize he's reliable. Trust him and obey him. That's the argument, and the evidence is what's right before them. What's the evidence for us? What are we supposed to look at to say, oh, the promises of God are reliable. I can trust him and walk in whatever way he points me. What are we supposed to look at? Well, perhaps there are circumstances in your life. Perhaps there are things that you want to personally look at and say, Here's a time when I know that God acted and God did something for me here. God showed up, delivered me from this need or from that trouble. You might want to do that. That's legitimate. But there is a larger, I would say more important body of truth than just the circumstances in your life. It's more important because it's outside of you. The circumstances in your life, you can reinterpret. Others can reinterpret them. But something that stands outside of you that you are supposed to look at regularly so as to realize God's trustworthy is what? The gospel. The events of the gospel. To see through the whole Bible promises all pointing towards something that was yet to come The promise that he would send a deliverer from a certain tribe, born in a certain place, who would die on a cross to relieve the burden of guilt on his people. All promised, and then it happened. Look around. He did it. Facts in history, not just feelings, but facts in history. The tomb was empty. And it still is. Facts in history, you should look at them and say, ah, his promises are indeed reliable. I can trust him. The fullness, it's not here yet. He hasn't actually come and set the whole world right. That's still out here. But he has done some of it already right now, has he not? He has come. He has delivered us from the the power of sin in our lives, given us the spirit to enable us to walk in his ways. He has made a people in which he is working holiness. Pentecost happened. The spirit has been poured out. Some of it has happened. The first fruits are here at hand. You can look at them right now. That is the ground to believe that the fullness will come and to act in faith, moving towards that. So what do we take out of all this? I think I'd put it like this. In in two ways, I would say there's, there's a call and an encouragement. We're called to active faith and encouraged by the evidence that's in our midst. We're called to faith in God's deliverance tomorrow and encouraged by the evidence of his deliverance today. So what do you do? 
look. Open your eyes and look. Look at his grace today. Look at the facts of the gospel today. Already come. And believe him then for more tomorrow. And act accordingly. In a sentence, our active faith in God's promises is encouraged and fueled by looking at what God has already done in keeping his promises. Deuteronomy 1, 1 to 18. Next week, we're going to see that they did not do this. They heard it and they turned away. Don't be like that. Hear it and embrace him. Believe and act. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace that we need to be honest with your commandments and your promises, your instructions towards us, to be honest with them. To be honest with ourselves about what we give intellectual assent to but don't actually act on and therefore don't believe. Give us grace to be honest with ourselves about that. And Father, I also pray for grace that you would enable us to see the evidence that is all around us of your grace already come today, of the deliverance that you have already worked facts of the gospel, the existence of a church, the work of your spirit to build and grow and expand the depth and breadth of your church. Give us eyes to see that. Lord, would you use this book to shape us as a people, as a community that walks with you in obedient, active faith. Help us with that, I pray, Father. For the sake of Christ's glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.